Hey guys, I just want to take a second to invite you to join the members only section of the website. I'm doing away with Patreon soon and everything's going to go straight to the website. You'll go there for bonus content, early releases, uh, extra behind the scenes stuff, my personal life kind of thing. Plus, I'm bringing in the Bump Hotline. Uh, open up a cell phone number that is just for members. Um, I'll send you text messages. You can send me voicemails directly. If I might just answer the phone. It just depends on if I'm busy or not. Um, and we can start group chats. You know, just things to pull the community together as believers. So I'm really excited about that. Um, it's only $1.75 per week. I found that being the most feasible way for everybody to be able to join. Um, that's less than the price of a candy bar a month, uh, a week. So jump on there, check it out. If you don't like it, you can unsubscribe at any time and you're not stuck, you know, paying these big high monthly subscription fees. Um, Patreon members and people who want to just donate to the show, you can still do that. You can always go through Anchor and just do a donation to the show if that's what you want to do. But for the monthly member support, it's just $1.75 a week now on thebumppodcast.com. Also, um, if there's anything that you want to send, if you want me to review books or anything like that before you come on the show, if you're an author, if you want to exchange decals, if you're another podcast and you want to do some swag exchanges, or if you just want to send something for me to check out, um, no cursed objects, please. (laughs) I have opened up a P.O. box for the show, you can make it out to the Bump Podcast at P.O. Box 1453 at Chapmanville, C-H-A-P-M-A-N-V-I-L-L-E, West Virginia, which is WV25508. I can't wait to hear from you guys. I've already received some artwork and some decals. I love it. I love how this community is growing and how everybody's just so close-knit. So, Don't stop believing, and thank you again for the support. I love you guys. When he turned his back from shoulder to shoulder, it looked like as wide as the tailgate of a truck. And this darkness, literal darkness, just came like all over, just just all over me except where I was standing. This thing let out the most blood-curdling, mind-blowing, spine-tingling scream that you've ever heard in your life, and it cut through me like a knife. And I knew that they were going to take me. I just knew it. And then the next thing I can remember is being levitated. Well, when I look in there, uh, I see two big eyes staring back at me. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Bump Podcast, a place for the believers of the unexplained, monsters, and paranormal. Join us, and we'll go face-to-face with what goes bump in the night.
I just want to throw a little disclaimer out there that this episode is not going to be like probably any that I've played before. Um, this one gets very personal for my guest, Pete. You guys know him by now. Um, also, the topic. Um, if you're a, a sensitive listener, you might want to skip this episode. Um, we go in. We go into his brother being um, killed in the line of duty as a police officer. It's a very um, heartfelt episode. And when I recorded my original intro, I didn't realize uh, to what extent this this was going to go. But I just want to give everybody a disclaimer, let you know ahead of time that um, it, it does get a little heavy. Okay, it gets real heavy. So, I'm sorry if it's a sensitive topic, but the story needs to be shared. And I love Pete with all my heart. He's been a, a great friend that I've made through this show. And I wanted to, to help bring honor to his family by, by sharing the story. So, with no further delays, we'll go ahead and get into it. Hey there, believers. I got a great episode for you today. I'm bringing back Pete, uh, Texas Pete, Weird West Texas, um, volume three. We're coming back for a third installment. Uh, there's a large gap between the first and second episode, not so much between the second and third. <clears throat> on this one, on the, well, you, need, you kind of need to listen to all three of these. Uh, the first one, he goes into some family history and some personal encounters. The second one, he goes into some of the, of the crazier stories around his area, you know, skinwalkers, uh, three-foot-tall Bigfoot, uh, different mysterious lights. Um, it's just a, it was just a great conversation. But we got into something there um, that's going to be a little bit heavier this, this episode um you know pete is a law enforcement officer retired law enforcement officer and his brothers uh, a couple of his brothers also joined um, the force and one was killed in the line of duty so he said there was there are some some odd things that surrounded that so we're going to get into that today so just keep pete in your in your thoughts and prayers um, as well as all of our law enforcement officers, you know, they're all doing a job that none of us want to do and being brave out there. So let's just, uh, go ahead and welcome Pete back onto the show. Yeah. Hello, Bo. Hey, how's it going, Pete? Pretty good. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. Doing good. Um, you ready to pick up where we left off at? Uh, yes, sir. I um, can you hear me good? I can. I can hear you just fine. All right. Yeah, I uh, I wanted to tell you something that happened that's deeply personal, and I've shared the story once before, but. I didn't tell everything, okay. 
because there are some paranormal aspects to it. And I didn't share most of those or all of them anyway. And so I'm going to share it with you, brother. Well, I, I, one, I appreciate it. And two, if, it, if at any point you need to stop, because I know this is a touchy subject, um, just say the word and we'll, we'll stop it, okay? Yes, sir. I, um, I'll tell you this. Uh, if I run on too long, you tell me when it's time to go. And if you got any questions, feel free to ask. And uh, I'm going to attempt to maintain my composure because it, this is a, a very personal. When I talk about this, I end up reliving it. And uh, it gets rough at times. And nothing has affected me in my life more than this one thing that I'm going to share with you. No, I appreciate you doing it, Pete. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. I, uh, I love you, brother. And uh, I want you to succeed. I want your show to succeed. And the main reason is because you're a genuine individual. By that, I mean, what you see is what you get. There's, there's nothing fake about you. I appreciate that, man. I love you too, Pete. Well, uh, this happened in Odessa, Texas. And I'm probably going to share the names for the simple fact that all of this is public information. It's out in the public domain. Okay. Uh, you or your listeners can look it up if you want to. The information's out there. It was Odessa, Texas. This happened on Saturday, September the 8th of 2007 at 6.30 p.m. Um, yeah, from episode one, your listeners already know I'm the oldest of three boys. What they don't know is that all three of us became cops in Odessa, Texas. And um, these are the same three boys that shared a king-size bed growing up where the hairy hand incident happened. That was us. We became cops. And I was the first one to become a cop. And my mom used to always worry. She, she worried something bad was going to happen. I was going to get hurt or killed. And I told her, mom, relax. That kind of stuff doesn't happen. Not out here anyway. And then later, my, my two younger brothers, my middle brother, Abel, the one whose name was called from the bathroom door. That time we were sneaking the Monopoly game in there. Uh, he was three years younger than me. And then my youngest brother, Philip, is four and a half years younger than me. And they always looked up to me. So they decided they were going to become cops too. So it went from just my mom ragging on me that something bad was going to happen to now she worried something was going to happen to them too. And I would, I would tell her, mom, relax. Nothing like that happens in a town as small as Odessa, Texas. That happens in the big cities, not out here. Well, on that day, it happened. We had, um, oh, and to set this up for you too, my brother Abel never worked overtime, ever, period. At the time, I was a sergeant over B-shift. And the reason that he didn't work overtime is because on his days off, he would try and see his kids. 
he'd gone through a bad divorce. His wife had cheated on him. Uh, he had tried to reconcile with her. This is uh, disturbing, but it was with another officer. After that, he was ostracized, except for uh, just three or four guys that still talked to him. Everyone else shunned him, as you could expect. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you, you just don't do that, man. That's right. Uh, but anyway, he had tried to reconcile with her, and it, it didn't work out. Um, they ended up divorced. So on his days off, he just wanted to be around his kids. So that's why he never worked overtime. And uh, at the time, there was... Uh, we had um, we, the town of Odessa is like uh, 120, 130,000 people. I don't know what the official census says, but I'm telling you, it's somewhere up there. And um, we would have 10 officers at the time. We were shorthanded. We were busy. And uh, so 10 was it. 10 officers, two sergeants. And uh, well, there was four sergeants, but two were off on the weekends and two weren't. I was one of the two that wasn't off. Our lieutenant was on a fishing trip down at Lake Amistad near Del Rio. And uh, so we had 10 officers, two of which were overtime. Uh, one of those was Arlie Jones. And my brother Abel was the other one. And he had signed up. He'd gotten off work that Friday. He was off on the weekends. And uh, we were coming on to replace them, and our shifts would overlap. We had an early squad and a late squad on every shift. That way you would always have some coverage when the shift ended. And so he was getting off work that Friday. My wife had picked up my oldest son from daycare. He was a year and a half old. So he was in the office. He was getting off. I was coming on. I was getting the, the worksheets ready, the assignments, the car keys, all that stuff. And he came in there and he was just shooting the breeze with me. And my wife called and she picked up my son from daycare and she was outside if I wanted to say hi to him because my shift had started. So I said, hey, they're outside. Let's go say hi real quick. So we went out there. He's in the back seat watching a cartoon on the DVR in the back of our SUV. The same one I was speeding away from the Marfa lights that I told you about last week. All right. And... Uh, he, he leaned in, said hi. Of course, our my one-and-a-half-year-old son, who's 16 now, he uh, he didn't even bother to look over at us. He was watching the cartoons, and he, he looked at me. He goes, hey, man, that boy's spoiled. Anyway, he goes, I'll wait for you inside. He went back into the office. So anyway, I talked to them and stuff and kissed them, told them goodbye. I loved them and went back in. And we had uh, back then you would post the, the overtime you would post the, the worksheets up on a bulletin board and, and anyone that wanted to sign up would just fill in their name on the blanks, you know? So Arlie had already signed up. And so I had nine people for the next day on Saturday. And so I walked back in and we're talking and uh, he goes, you still need someone to work overtime tomorrow? I said, yeah, I think I got one spot open. He goes, no, you don't turn around and look. I turned and looked. And he had signed his name up for the next day on Saturday. And this guy never, ever worked overtime, no matter how much I asked or begged. 
And this is my middle brother, Abel. And I, and I asked, I said, I said, what got into you? What are you signing up for? He said, I decided I'm going to start working overtime. He said, I'm going to pay my bills and I'm going to move to San Marcos. Mm-hmm. I said, Marcus, why over there? He said, because it's close to Fiesta, Texas, SeaWorld in San Antonio. There's stuff to do, lakes, rivers. That way, when I have the kids, he goes, we'll have fun stuff to go do. And I said, that doesn't make sense. You'll be moving further away from him. Anyway, he signed up. That was the deal, right? Yeah. So the next day comes Saturday. And um, no, wait a second. Let me tell you what happened that night. That night, he went out and uh, he had some drinks with one of his, he had two best friends. He went and had some drinks with him at a bar. Uh, It wasn't just a bar. It was like a hotel bar. It's where they would have comedy shows and stuff. Well, while they were there, they met these two ladies. They were out on the town and they ended up all four having drinks together. And that'll come into play later. If I forget to mention that, remind me so I can tell you about it. Okay. So they got done drinking that night and he went to his apartment complex where he was living and he had been dating this, this lady, this single mom that was there. And I didn't find this out till later, but at that point he knocked on her door. She came out. She said, it's late. You've been drinking, go home. He goes, I'm ready to go home. And she goes, well, then go home. And he goes, no, not that home. And he pointed up oh. towards him. Yeah. But I didn't know about this at the time, okay? But I'm just telling you. He told her he's ready to go home. And uh, so I got off work that night, that Friday night. Uh, my shift would end at 2 in the morning. So I got home 2.30, 40, something like that. I walk in. And the house was dark, as you would expect. The, uh, the only light came from the aquarium. So I walk into the foyer. We had like a foyer and then that aquarium was pretty bright. It would, it would light up the whole living room, you know. This is the same living room I was chasing that sun around that I told you where he saw something scary. And as I walked past the foyer, to the left was where the bedrooms were at. And as I get there, I get startled. My wife was standing there and she scared the crap out of me. And I said, what are you doing up? She said, I had a bad dream. I said, well, what was it? She said, I dreamed this blonde woman with cat eyes and she was laughing because three babies had been killed wow. and I said and she goes and then I saw you sitting in the recliner in the living room she said and half your head was blown off like it was blown away mm. it's horrible. yeah I told her it's just a bad dream don't worry about it let's go to bed and what happened is uh I, well, this is what I told her uh this was September the 8th of 07 well in april of 07 i had been in a car wreck at work where my head was cut open in the car 
and I'd received 14 staples to the top of my head. Mm. And I didn't notify her or anybody because as usual, I was working the weekends. I was a new sergeant, so you, you had to work the weekends. And um, so I didn't notify her or anyone else. I didn't want her to pack the baby up in April and come see me at the hospital because it wasn't life-threatening, Bo. So why would I risk my family, you know? Right. There's drunk drivers out. It's a weekend night. There's drunk drivers all over the place. So I didn't notify anybody. So when I got off work that morning, instead of waking her up, I sat in that recliner and I fell asleep. So she woke up in the morning and came up behind me. She was like, <gasps> she saw my head and was freaked out. Oh, wow. So I, her, I said, that dream, I said, that dream's just because of what happened last April when you saw me in the, in the recliner with the staples in my head and you freaked out. Yeah. Well, that would make sense. You know, that'd be. Yeah. So I said, so it's no big deal. I said, let's go to bed. You know, it was just a bad dream. Right. Now, mind you, this is the day of the, of uh, the incident, hmm. but it's at two something, almost three in the morning. Well, I go to sleep and stuff, whatever. I go back to work that Saturday. I had to be there before 4 p.m. I got the early squad out, which um, Abel and Arlie had signed up for the early squad. And uh, so the early squad would go to work at 4 p.m. and the late squad at 6 p.m. It was half and half, five, five at four and five at six. Put those guys out. And now, mind you, this overlaps the day shift, which also got off at four and six. So we always had coverage. And uh, we were working evenings. He showed up. He told me that he'd had an argument with his girlfriend. He said he said some mean things that he regretted. Because I noticed he was kind of quiet and depressed. And so I had to ask him what was going on. And I met him in the basement. He'd gone down to his locker to get all his equipment. And I just happened to run into him because the bathroom's down there. And I said, what, what's wrong? And he told me, yeah, we had an argument. He said, I said some mean things I shouldn't have said. And I kind of laughed it off and said, hey, just pick up the phone, call her and apologize. I said, she'll forgive you. And so I didn't find out till later, but that is actually what he did after he went out there and went to work. He did call her and he did apologize. I, we found out from her later that, that he had called her and apologized and she had forgiven him. And that's when she told us about how he had said he was ready to go home and pointed up to heaven. Oh. So anyway, that's just. So we're getting ready to do the late squad. They come on at six. We had briefing. After briefing was over. Uh, we went to the day shift office. They were getting off work and one of the other sergeants over there, he had a football game on the TV. And so we'd all walked over to say hi and see what was going on. And while we're standing there, I hear my brother come on the radio and he says, 922 headquarters, code six, subject with a knife, officer down. Well, code six means drop whatever you're doing. Officer needs help right now. 
Oh man. Yeah. Now this other, one of my late squad officers, his name was uh, Scott Gardner. Before he called code six, he told me as he, before he walked out to go to work, he said, uh, the game we were watching had gone to overtime. Hmm. And he goes, let me know what happens. And he wasn't even a fan of that team. He was a Longhorn fan. <laughs> it was the other team from Texas that we won't bring up because they're kind of a cult. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Scott, he goes, let me know what happens. And he walked out. So our late squad guys, the 6 p.m. guys, they're outside loading the car when my brother called code six. Yeah. So I, we all run out of the office and as I'm running out there to get to my car, doctors like Scott and all of them that were already loading their cars, they were already under there loading the cars. So they got a little bit of a head start on us. And, uh, so, you know, these little pauses that I do like that, Bo, yeah. my, my little brother heard our first interview. He said the only thing that annoyed him was my pauses. He, he called them dramatic pauses. <laughs> They're not dramatic pauses. I'm thinking of what I'm going to say. You know, I do, the you know same. I do the same thing. Remember, I was talking to my wife last night and I told her, I said, I wish I could just say a full sentence without having to pause. But, right. But I do. I do it all the time. Uh, I've been called William Shatner and everything, man, over, over doing this. I, don't worry yeah. about it. Okay. So, yeah, they're, they're not dramatic pauses. And I apologize to your listeners because if it annoyed him, I'm sure it annoys them too. No, man, that's just, that's just baby brother picking on you. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I got to tell you about him too. Uh, anyway, the, uh, by the time I run out the back door, these officers are taken off from under our sally port, lights and sirens. I jump in. We're going down West County Road, and I was cussing, Bo, because the, the way Odessa Midland works, it's boom or bust. It's a oil field, man. When there's a bust, we're all broke. Yeah. When it's a boom, you got all the equipment and budget you want. Yeah. They overdo it. But anyway, at the time, was one of the bust times at this point, and so... The chief had got rid of a, I think Ford quit making the Crown Victorias, our Crown Vicks, which are full-size cars with V8 engines. And so what they went to was these little Chevy Impalas with six cylinders. I remember uh, when that happened, everywhere that happened. Yeah, I hated those little cars. And oh, man. man, I had the pedal down to the floor and it would not move fast enough. And I'm cussing. And we're going down West County and all you see in front of me is just, the day shift guys that were still there heard it, jumped in, and they went, and the ones coming on went. It was a line of cars, I don't know, 10 or 11 patrol cars, lights, sirens. I'm cussing, and then I hear officers come on the radio, and they, they're saying shots fired, headquarters. Uh, no, they didn't say shots fired. They said officers down, and I heard officers. I'm thinking officers plural because the last thing I had heard was my brother said a subject with a knife, an officer down. Right. right. So I, in my mind, I'm, I'm, I'm cussing and I'm thinking, what is this guy, a ninja? Well, some subject with a knife. And now we got plural officers down. Right. I'm thinking, well, somebody, will somebody please shoot his ass. Right. 
And I'm thinking if, if they don't shoot him, by the time I get there, I'll shoot him. Yeah. I was thinking, please, somebody shoot him. We've got all, all kinds of officers. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm thinking some kind of ninja or something. I mean, who else? Right. Right. Well, uh, I get there and this happened over on Ventura street and I, I pull up Bo. And as I pull up, there's my brother, Abel, the one who never worked overtime. He's standing behind a police car and it wasn't his car. It was another officer named Cody's car. He's got his 45 Sig Sauer in his right hand. And then his microphone that's attached to the radio that's normally on his left lapel shoulder. It's hanging by the wire, the cord. And I pull up right behind him. And when we make eye contact, his knees buckle and he leans on the trunk for support just to stay upright. And as I walk up, he's got blood coming out of his mouth, his entire neck and the front of his uniform is covered in blood. And when I see my brother, I think that his throat has been cut because he said subject with a knife. And I guess when his knees buckled, we made eye contact and his knees buckled. He probably figured, oh, big brother's here. Yeah. Everything's going to be all right. And of course it wasn't. And so I walk up and I noticed, uh, that's when I noticed a bullet hole in his left jaw. At that point, it's the first time I realized this is not a subject with a knife. It was a subject with a gun. And what had happened is uh, it was a family disturbance. This old drunk guy used to always beat the tar out of his wife. And at various times, she would, she even had tried to get her brother involved. And this guy beat the tar out of her brother, too. Yeah. Well, on this day, she got tired of the beatings. She uh, went next door to the neighbor's house and called the cops. Well, uh, my brother contacted her next door. He asked if there was any weapons in the house. She said, yeah, he had guns and rifles, but she had locked them in the trunk of a car in the garage. So he said, okay. So he's relaying this information to Arlie. And uh, our main channel was channel one. That's all you get your dispatch calls on channel one. But if you wanted to talk to an officer just one-on-one, you would, you would tell him to go to channel two. And so he relayed this information to Arlie on channel two. Mm-hmm. Anytime officers told another officer to go to channel two, we'd all turn to channel two to listen in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're all going to eavesdrop and see right. what they're well, uh, Arlie had called code six officer down shots fired, but he had forgot to turn his radio back to channel one. So when he called it in, it was on channel two and no one heard it. Oh no! Yeah. 
So my brother had gone to Channel 2 to relay this information. And then uh, they went to the back door. She, she gave my brother a key to the house. They went to the back door by the kitchen. My brother had his taser out. He's calling out to this guy by name. And when the guy steps out from the hallway, my brother's standing at the back door by the kitchen with his taser out. This guy comes out with a 12-gauge shotgun with double-op buck, which is nine ball bearings. For anybody out there that doesn't know what double-op buck is, it's nine ball bearings. He shoots my brother point-blank. My brother drops the taser and returns fire with the 45, but he ducked out of the way. So my brother didn't hit him. And my brother had been the top, had got the top gun award. I, I, it was either an 02 or 03. And this was an 07. So he was a good shot. He was a SWAT team member. He was a, he was the best shooter at the department that one year. Yeah. And he missed them. But mind you, he's already been shot. Right. Point blank. Yeah. So my brother retreats. This is when Arlie called code six officer down subject with a gun, but he called it on channel two. No one heard it. My brother Arlie retreated one way. He ducked down behind an air conditioning unit in a barbecue pit. My brother Abel retreated around the side of the house behind the brick wall on the garage side. That's when my brother called in uh, code six officer down subject with a knife. I think the shock of it is why he called subject with a knife because the guy had didn't have a knife. He had a 12 gauge. Right. So what happened? Um, the vest caught the brunt of it. One of the ball bearings hit his left forearm. It shattered his left forearm and it went through and through. Mm. Another ball bearing hit him on that left jaw. That's the bullet hole I had seen. Uh, after this is going on where we're all trying to get there, the guy went through the house to one of the bedrooms outside his bedroom window is where Arlie was ducking behind the barbecue pit and air conditioner. So he shoots Arlie through the window point blank range. Oh yeah. And then once Arlie goes down, he shoots him again in the head for good measure. And uh, so I'm asking my brother what happened. He said, you know, this guy came out and shot us, shot at us. He said, I think Arlie's down. And I said, where? He goes in the back. I said, in the back where? He goes in the back of the house. Now, at this point, the officer whose car we were standing behind comes running up. Now, while I'm talking to my brother, I'm still hearing shots going off. They're still. Cody comes running up. He goes, Sarge, Sarge. He goes, "Uh, Scott just got shot. And at this point, dispatch had already said there was ambulances en route. But, you know, ambulances, they're not going to pull up to a hot scene where shots are still being fired. No, no, they can't. No, they they stage so many blocks away or whatever. Right. And uh, 
so when when Cody come running up, I uh, I said okay, and uh, I told him I put I told him to take Abel to the emergency room and to go code three. Now, the reason I did that is because I didn't know where these ambulances were staging and shots are still being fired. This was pure chaos, man. Yeah. And so I thought, what better, what's better than an ambulance if not getting him to the emergency room, right? right? So I had Cody take him. What I didn't know at the time was that the reason Cody was running over there was to get his M16 out of the trunk. Uh, we had those uh, army surplus, military surplus M16s issued to us. Yeah. So that's what he was running over there to get. And uh, what I'll tell you what, what I misunderstood when my brother said Arlie was down in, in the back of the house. I understood he was in the house, like in a back bedroom. Right. That makes I sense. Yeah. I didn't know he was in the backyard. You know? Yeah. So anyway, he takes some code three. Um, at one point, the guy walks out the back door. All the officers are lined up under the kitchen window there by the back door. He comes out. The closest officer, his name's Dayton. The guy comes out looking around, but he makes the mistake of looking to the left first. Dayton spots him and opens fire on him. Yes. But Dayton had a nine millimeter because he had small hands he's a short guy right and uh he ended up one of the rounds only one of the rounds hit him down in the torso but it was one of those through and through rounds it went completely through and it didn't take him down Mm. so he retreats back into the house and he shot him through the glass door uh the door was open but he shot him through the door and uh so the guy retreats back in the house. We end up having a standoff. And what had happened is Scott had walked up. And in say, this is 6.30 p.m. on a Saturday, hot September day. You can't see inside the house. The screen windows were open, but you couldn't see in because it's dark in there. But he could see clearly outside. And Scott walked up. Yeah. He, he told the guy. Scott told the guy to put his gun down and come on out and give up. The guy said, why don't y'all just leave me alone? And he fired that 12 gauge at Scott and hit him in the face. Oh my gosh. Scott went down. So now we've got three officers shot. We got a, we got a standoff. I mean, everybody showed up. DPS troopers, sheriff's office, district attorney investigators, off-duty barbecuing show up in shorts with a vest and their assault rifles. We have people showed up from everywhere. We had uh, Midland, which is 20 miles down the road. They showed up and started taking some of our calls for us so that our guys could be out at the scene. Uh, The other sergeant. Um. It was me and one other sergeant. We were the two newer sergeants. And he was also a sergeant on the SWAT team. At this point, he said uh, him and this other officer were going to go retrieve Scott's body from the backyard 
and I was going to provide cover fire for them. And that officer was one of Scott's best friends. Oh, Scott was a friend of mine. And he said, Sarge, he said, Scott's gone. That's a terrible idea because that's going to expose us to fire. And he said, he's not, he's not breathing. He's, he's, he said he's, he was gone on the spot. So at that point, he thought better of that plan. And, and we ended up not going back there to retrieve his body. Um, I, uh, after everybody showed up, I finally, I don't know if I've been there an hour, hour and a half. I don't know how long I was there. I finally got relieved. And uh, that's when I was able to go up to the hospital where Abel was at. And uh, at one point, when he was on the way to the hospital, I called my mom. She was a CNA at the hospital. And I told her, I need you to go down to the emergency room and meet Abel. He's on his way over there. And she's like, what happened? And I said, I said, he's going to be all right. I said, but he's been shot. And so she did. We hung up. She went down there and met him. And, uh, they ended up calling out the SWAT team and all that. And all the command staff showed up, the chief, everybody was out there. I got relieved. I go up to the hospital. Bo, when I made eye contact with my mom, that look said it all. Oh. Sorry, P. It was like a, like I, I told you this was going to happen. And I couldn't say anything because I was the one that always reassured her that something like this would not happen. Right. And here it is, it's happened. And you know what? She didn't say, I told you so. She didn't say anything. It was that look, that look said it all. It's the, I told you so look. Yeah. She didn't have to say it. It tore me up. So what had happened is Abel had walked in. He got to the emergency room. When he got there, the last thing he told Cody is, uh, I left my gun in your back seat. Make sure you retrieve it so a bad guy won't get it later if you've got one back there. And I saw the video. I saw the in-car video. He was conscious the whole time. At one point, he told uh, Cody to if he could roll the window down so he'd get some air. Right. And uh, I saw the video at the surveillance video from the emergency room. He walked in under his own power. And then they took him and did, uh, they did all kinds of x-rays and CAT scans and all this stuff. He was up and talking uh, to everybody. And then at one point when he'd been there, I don't know, an hour, however long. That's when he told the doctors that he felt his throat swelling up and it was getting hard for him to breathe. At that point, they 
tried to intubate him, yeah. but he started not being able to breathe. And I guess somehow he was fighting, I guess, because of all the damage in his throat from that one round that got through. It uh, shattered his jaw and then traveled down his throat. Oh it caused a lot of damage. And so apparently he'd been fighting them. So they couldn't get the, the tube in. So they started uh, sedating him. And uh, personally, I think that's what did him in. Because I think they gave him too much. Yeah. They finally called a, a surgeon from the second floor of the hospital to come down and try to do the intubation. They couldn't do it. He, that man finally did it. But it took a while. And they gave him so much um, anesthesia that he ended up flatlining. So I, I personally, what I think did him in was the anesthesia, not the shot. Because he walked in under his power and was talking to him. And after all that anesthesia, he flatlined. And uh, at this point, they finally got the, they brought him back. They uh, got the tube in. And they ended up flying him to Lubbock, Texas. And uh, I ended up driving over there with some friends. And I was still optimistic because the last I saw my brother, we were talking, right? Right. Yeah. And so I thought he would be fine. And uh, I'm going to tell you something else. I regret when I saw him, he looked bad with all that blood down his mouth and throat, chest. What I, what I wanted to say, I wanted to ask him if he repented of his sins. Right? Right. But you know why I didn't do that? Because I didn't want to plant a seed of doubt in his head that he wasn't going to make it and he wasn't going to be fine. I get that. So I didn't. And uh, they filmed Lubbock. I drove over there. Now, the doctors had come out. Now, mind you, these two doctors were these young guys from Dallas. They would show up there on the weekends and do contract work to cover for the regular emergency room doctors that live there. Mm. And the guy that was off that weekend was the best surgeons. This guy had been a a combat doctor in Iraq. He was an army veteran and uh, he would have been the perfect trauma guy to have there, but he was off that weekend. So they had these young guys they had contracted to, they flew in from Dallas. They, uh, they didn't know what they were doing, Bo. Right. Um, they told me, they told me and my family that my brother had flatlined and that he had been without oxygen for four or five minutes. And when we get to Lubbock, those doctors said, no, your brother has swelling of the brain. And they said, this is indicative. We see this all the time in near drownings. And they said he was without oxygen for seven or more minutes to have this extent of injuries. Oh. 
Yeah. I later talked to some of the officers that had been working off duty at the ER that day. And they said, nah, it, it wasn't three or four minutes. They said it was 10 minutes or more. They said he was, he was flatlined for a long time. So um, we get over there to Lubbock and uh, Lubbock PD and the Lubbock Sheriff's Office was awesome. They had officers stationed outside his door all the time. And we had a steady stream of people going up there and praying with my brother and talking to him and visiting with him. He was unconscious and uh, he would have tears that would run out the sides of his eyes. And I asked the doctors about that and they said, well, that's involuntary. It's due to the brain injury that happens. And then his uh, daughter who was 10 and his son who was seven, they and they start pleading with daddy to wake up. Please daddy, wake up. And all of a sudden, Bo, those tears, they start flowing. I mean, heavy. Yeah. So I know he could hear him. And uh, told the doctors about that. Now, mind you, he's been unresponsive this whole time. He's in a coma. But I know he could hear him. And I told the doctors about that. And they said, no, that's involuntary. That happens. And I told him, I said, well, then why do they increase in volume when his kids were pleading with him? Yeah. <clears throat> so uh scott gnarly died on the spot and my brother was in the hospital for several days after the shooting i was up there in lubbock and uh what happened next is they were going to have scott gnarly's funerals back in odessa one was going to be in the morning and one was going to be in the afternoon and so as I was leaving Lubbock with my wife, I, uh, I uh, whispered, or not whispered, but I, I told Abel in his ear, I told him to, I told him I'd be back. And I told him, I'm just going to go say bye to Scott Gnarly. And I said, then I'll be back. And... I know he had been con concerned about Arlie because I asked my mom if she got to talk to Abel at the, at the emergency room. And she said, yeah, she said he kept asking about Orly. How's Orly? How's Orly? She goes, who's Orly? I said, it's not Orly. It's Arlie. I said, and I said, Arlie died. She goes, that's all he kept asking about. How's, how's Arlie? So I think when I told him that I was going to say, goodbye to Arlie and Scott I think he heard that because I only made it to the next town south of Lubbock which is Wolferth and I got a call from the nurse his his intensive care nurse she said uh your brother has taken a turn for the worse and you need to get back over here so we made a u-turn and went back and we ended up missing Scott and Arlie's funeral funerals. Right. And my brother crashed after we left there. And at that point, 
the the tears had stopped. He was uh, no longer regulating his own body temperature. It would rise real high over 100, and then it would drop down into the 60s, 70s. They said he's effectively brain dead. They said he cannot regulate his own breathing. He cannot regulate his body temperature. And they disconnected the breathing apparatus to show us his actual breathing. And it was real shallow breathing, what, what you would call, I guess, guppy breathing, if you ever heard of that. Yeah. Not enough to sustain life. And they rehooked him up. So my mom and dad and me and Philip, at that point, it, he couldn't regulate his body temperature and he couldn't breathe. And we knew he didn't want to live that way. Right. That's not really living. So we decided to we decided to discontinue care. Now we'll tell you this. Uh, two people in Lubbock, Texas, each got one of his kidneys and a 65 year old man in Houston got his liver. Oh, wow. So three people got an extended lease on life yeah. when his came to an end. He saved three more people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he did. And, uh, I'll tell you something else. Um, Eight years after he died, I went to I went to court on an armed robbery case. This is eight years after he died. Yeah. And what happened is I was investigating the case. I was a, a detective. I put out an attempt to locate on a vehicle. And my brother Abel had found the vehicle, found the suspect. And found the, the knife that was used in the armed robbery. And eight years after he died, we got a new DA and he had hired some new uh, assistant prosecutors. And they were clearing out all this old docket that had been sitting there. And they took that, they took that robbery case to trial. And uh, based on Abel's report and on me testifying, that guy was convicted, got 40 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. And that was the last guy Abel ever sent to jail eight years after his death. And oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. That was pretty cool. I had to just throw that in there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the, uh, the paranormal stuff, as far as this case is concerned, um, my wife's dream that she'd had, yeah. It was the it was the day of the shooting, but it was at two thirty in the morning on the day of the shooting, and the shooting hadn't happened yet. And she dreamed the blonde-haired woman with cat eyes that was laughing because three babies had been killed. Right. And here you got that same that same day that later that day that afternoon you end up with with the three officers shot and all three of them had mamas so, so there's your three babies that were killed yeah 
So it's kind of a premonition dream, Nothing but there was not enough information to prevent it or do anything about it, you know? Mm. And um, when my wife was packing to head to Lubbock, she, she was asking God, why did this happen? Why did he allow this to happen? She said she heard a voice in her head tell her, your husband's alive, isn't he? Yeah. And if you remember her dream, the second part of her dream, my head, half my head was gone. I got blown away. Right. Uh, to this day, I think the fact that Abel was upright and standing when I pulled up, he prevented me from walking back there. And I think that was going to be my fate. I think so. I think, I think the, the fact that I stopped to talk to him prevented that part of the dream from happening. Mm. And uh, so this is the other thing. Um, the night before his funeral, they were about to close up the funeral home. And my mom and dad and my wife were standing there. I was holding my one and a half year old son. And I told him, let's go say bye to Uncle Abel so we can go bye-bye. And we walked over to my brother's casket. He's laying there. And all of a sudden, my son looks over to, towards the foot of the casket and he starts shadow boxing, play fighting with someone. And there's no one standing there that we can see. And he starts smiling and, and play fighting while I'm holding him. And at this point, I look over at my mom and dad and, and my wife. And they all were looking at me. They, they saw it too. Mm. They, they, we all saw this. He was play fighting with, I think, Uncle Abel was standing there. You know it, man. Um, so the next day was the funeral thousands of people turned out um, those cops from all over the country showed up everybody I mean even from Chicago they, they came from everywhere um, my brother's body had been escorted to Fort Worth for the autopsy and every county they went to it was a tag team escort. Every, they, they had two of our own officers that escorted escorted the, his body over there. But every county they came to, they would they would have a full escort through the county. And it was like a relay race. They'd move to the next county. There would be officers there waiting. It was the same way all the way to Fort Worth and back to Odessa. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so fast forward about two weeks after the funeral i was sitting at home one day my wife came home from work and then she asked me she said uh what's wrong with shelly and shelly's our daughter she was uh when this happened she was about 11 i said i i don't know so she went into shelly's room and talked to her and then she came out and shelly my daughter, Shelly, she, uh, she's always been sensitive to these things. 
these paranormal things. She'd been folding up laundry and took it into mine and my wife's bedroom. She said when she walked in there, she told my wife this. She saw my brother sitting at the foot of our bed. Mm. He was wearing a white t-shirt and blue jeans and he waved at her. <laughs> and she got scared and walked out. So when my wife got home from work, that's why she was upset. Now, at this point, I kind of got upset because here I am totally devastated. I've lost two friends and my brother. Amen. And uh, I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to see him. But I couldn't see him. And I'm glad I didn't see him. Because what I know now that I didn't know then is about these familiar spirits, which is really demons disguised as your loved ones in an attempt to get you to converse with them. Mm. So here's the thing, Bo. I don't know if there's such thing as ghosts or not. Right? Right. So I don't know if that was a familiar spirit. Or if that was really his ghost. I don't know because I know enough to know that I don't know. Exactly, yeah. I, I would like it to believe it was a ghost, but who knows? It could have been a demon. I'll tell you this. Since my, my wife and I both work shift work, mine would rotate. Some days I was days or nights, whatever. And she worked mostly nights. So, you know, the boys would sleep with me in our bed whenever she was at work. And back then, of course, it was just my oldest son, our youngest son hadn't been born yet. And uh, there was a handful of times where I'd be laying there and I would feel somebody sit down at the foot of the bed, exactly where Shelly said my brother had been sitting. I would feel someone sit on the bed. I would feel the weight of it. And I would turn thinking my wife had gotten home from work and sat down and there would be no one there. Wow. After huh? the first, yeah. After the first couple of times that happened, I wouldn't even look anymore. Right. Cause I knew that it happened a few more times, but I, this, I wouldn't even react anymore because I knew there wasn't going to be anyone sitting there. Yeah. So I don't know what that was. Um, Again, I guess it was a month or two later, I was working one night and uh, my wife called and said that she'd been watching TV in the living room and she saw someone walk across our back patio and uh, they were wearing white t-shirt and blue jeans and she called me. We lived out in the county and I worked in the city. So, of course, at that point, I, uh, I told her, stay put. I'd be right there. I called the sheriff's office, had them send some deputies out there because they, they were going to beat me out there because they, they, they work out there. And uh, so I hauled butt over there. They, they didn't find anything. I, I checked the yard, the alley. We didn't find anything. And then she made me mad because she told me uh, she'd gone out there with a flashlight and checked. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And then uh, 
she said even though she caught this image from her peripheral vision she said she thought it was able mm. now get this he had this nice crotch rocket motorcycle that he loved right that motorcycle was on our back patio when she saw this really yes yeah well if ghosts and visitations are real you know that would make sense that he would you know, go check on his bike wouldn't it <laughs> I, I think so i mean him and his friends rode that they would ride they would go ride together and they went all over the place and uh, i'll tell you uh that's some of the paranormal stuff that happened but i'll tell you something that happened years later this was three or four years later i'd gone to this uh propane business to refill the two big tanks on our travel trailer yeah and while the guy was filling the tanks he asked me uh about my dad and i said yeah that's my dad and he said, yeah, your dad's been one of our customers for over 30 years. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, nicest guy. He goes, uh, can I ask you something? I said, yeah. He goes, did you have a brother that was killed in the line of duty? I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, well, I got to share this with you. He said, my wife and I were driving down 16th Street one time, and she looked back and got scared and I asked her what's wrong and she said you know those three officers that were killed he goes yeah she said they're sitting in our back seat wow. I said really I said really he said yes sir she said your brother and the other two officers this guy was a Hispanic guy and so was his wife right and uh he said all three of the officers were sitting in our back seat, which I've never understood that because as far as I know, we didn't have any kind of connection to these folks. Right. Well, maybe she's but, kind of medium, you know, uh, even if she's not aware, you know, she might be able to, you know, to, to recognize by the area, the people that were there. Yeah. And uh, I don't know why they three would be sitting in the back of their car, but and this was a chance this was a chance meeting with this guy you know what i mean i didn't know him he knew my dad all right that's and this was years after it happened i thought how strange do you, do you think that these things are you, you think that maybe they happened to give you some comfort and validation or in an attempt to give you some comfort and validation that um you know he's he's still around you know, keeping an eye on things or I don't know, Bo, but at one point, right after the shooting, I asked, I asked God if it was possible that if there is such thing as him giving us guardian angels, I asked if Abel could be our guardian angel. Right. I, I don't know if that's even a possibility, but I did ask that. Uh, I will tell you that this guy never went to trial. They found out he had throat cancer. So they were not about to spend all this money on a capital murder trial on a guy that's going to die anyway. So we never got a sense of closure or justice out of this. Oh my goodness. He died an alleged cop killer. 
alleged because he was never convicted. Um, I was so angry and bitter. The, uh, the Texas Ranger that talked to him in the back of the ambulance said, do you realize you shot three officers? He told that Texas Ranger, I wish I'd have shot more. So back around 2018 or 2019, I found out from my little brother, Philip, that he wrote a letter to this guy in jail and forgave him. And I asked Philip, I said, why didn't you tell me this? He said, because I knew you wouldn't approve. Yeah. I, I said, you're damn right. I wouldn't approve. I said, I would have wrote him a letter in jail telling him I don't forgive him. But I have since forgiven him. But it took a total transformation of myself. And the reason I bring this up is um, I turned to heavy drinking, Bo. Right. I, I mean, for years, just, just self-loathing. I don't know if you want to call it survivor's guilt or what. I, I was just angry and bitter. I said something one time, Bo, that I should have never said. Uh, I was on the verge of taking myself out right. at least, at least three different occasions over the years. And the reason I didn't is because I was raised to believe if you kill yourself, you automatically go to hell. Yeah. One way to, yeah. Yeah. So I thought that's what kept me from doing it, even though I contemplated it. And the words we speak could end up convicting you. Right. What I said at one point was, I asked God, if this guy's in hell, then I wanted to go to hell too, to get my hands on him. I never should have said that. I have since repented of that. I've asked him to forgive me of saying that and to please not hold me to it. Of course. Of course. You know that he's forgiven you as soon as you ask. And I thank the Lord that you're here with us now, Pete. I'm I, glad that you didn't take your own life, man. Yeah. I should have never said that. And I know that now. That's and I have, I have forgiven him. And I know we've got to forgive to be forgiven. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he, he lingered in jail for over four years, never went to trial. And uh, I'll tell you, four months later, four months after this all happened. Oh, before I get to that, let me tell you this. One of my old sergeants, she was a female sergeant. Mm -hmm. She came to visit during the funerals. And uh, she had already retired and moved to Florida. But she was kind of uh, one of my mama mentors when I first started out. Right. And uh, we're sitting at my kitchen table. It was me and my wife and her. And at one point, when, I'm t when she asked what happened, I'm telling her the whole story I just told you. She told me, she said, in retrospect, do you think it would have been better? Was it such a wise idea to put him in the car and send him to the emergency room? Or should you maybe have put him in the ambulance? 
and my jaw dropped. I'm looking at her like, I can't believe you just said that. Yeah, really. I told her, this is what I told her, right? I said, nobody second guesses himself more than I second guess myself each and every day. Like, was that the right decision? I said, I don't know. I said, would I do it the other way around next time? I said, I don't know. Maybe I would. I said, I just thought getting him to the emergency room where the actual doctors are at and all the equipment was better than trying to find an ambulance to stage somewhere where I don't even know where it's at. Right. And here's the other thing, Bo. I second guess myself. I didn't need her to tell me that. Right. That's that's just the devil using somebody else to get to you, man, to, to plant more seeds, to beat yourself up. Yeah. I was like, oh, here's the other thing, Bo. Uh, you know how you treat others the way you want to be treated? Absolutely. Yes. I would never, even if I was thinking that, I would never one of my troops that. Right. Even if I was thinking it, I wouldn't verbalize it. No. no we wouldn't put that on somebody. I already feel like crap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I, um, believe it or not, I've never spoken to her again since. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't blame you. And you know, I'm without a doubt. I wouldn't, I have no clue how I would respond in that situation, but I'm sure you being a, a seasoned officer and that being your brother, of course you did what you felt was right you did the, the best thing you knew to do. So nobody can question that. And I hope that you don't need to question yourself anymore about that. Of course you did the right thing. I'll tell you what else. If, uh, if that had been Scott or Arlie standing there, yeah. instead of my brother, Abel, I would have done the exact same thing. Right. And uh, I'll tell you what else. Uh, the newspaper had published a article that said that I had put Abel in my police car and I drove him to the hospital. <sighs> well, you know what? That led uh, Scott and Arlie's family to question uh, why I left their loved ones there. Right. I never left. Right. I stayed there. Uh, I put him in Cody's car and sent him. But mm. the way that article, uh, when I called the newspaper and told them they needed to correct that crap, they said that they were going to correct it. Well, they didn't even publish a correction. All they did was correct it on their online edition. Oh, wow. So everybody that bought that newspaper thinks that I put my brother in my car and I left the scene and basically said to hell with everyone else. Right. Which is not what happened. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so four months go by, right? Yeah. All three officers are going to receive two medals at city hall posthumously a medal of valor and a medal of honor four months later they were going to have that ceremony in the afternoon well that morning my dad was retired and uh my mom was going to take him to go get breakfast and after that she said they were going to go buy him some new socks and underwear for the ceremony <laughs> and he was excited. My dad had been having fainting spells. 
Hmm. Well, she, she worked nights, so while she was asleep in the daytime, he'd go outside to feed the dogs, give them water. And then he would find himself 20 minutes later, woke up, staring up at the sky, not wondering how he ended up on the ground. Oh, no. Yeah. And then one time I was taking him to a doctor's appointment and the same thing happened in my passenger seat to where I'm talking to him one minute, next minute, he's unresponsive. And then he starts, he kind of does like a snoring sound and snaps out of it. So I, I said to heck with the doctor, I drove him to the ER. Yeah. They didn't find nothing wrong with him. So then we took him to all these specialists. They never could find anything wrong with him. <laughs> well, on the morning of this ceremony, I'm at home. I wasn't going to, I didn't have to be at work till later that afternoon. And uh, by this point, I was the sergeant over the canine unit. And uh, next thing you know, I remember I was sweeping the dining room floor at our house. I get a call from my mom. And she said, my dad is unresponsive. And he was uh, in the front passenger seat of their minivan. So I live two minutes away from my parents. So, of course, I jump in the car. I haul butt over there. As I'm on the way, I'm calling for an ambulance. I get there. My dad's in the passenger seat. My mom's sitting there crying. He's still seat belted in. I check his pulse. I don't feel one. So I undo a seatbelt. I put him down on the ground in their front yard. And it kind of irritated me that my mom was a CNA. And, you know, they, they tell you the medical professionals will tell you it's different when it's your own loved one. Uh, yeah, it is. Absolutely. Well, because she did not start CPR, didn't do anything and was sitting there crying and pretty much didn't help me. I, uh, I started doing CPR on my dad. They always tell you you're going to break ribs if you do it right. Right. That first compression, I broke all his ribs. By the second compression, I broke however many were left that weren't broke. Right. I started CPR. The, the chief of the volunteer fire department actually worked with the city fire department. And he showed up first. And by the point, by the time he got there, I was exhausted. I thought he was going to take over, right? And he tells me, no, he goes, uh, you're doing fine. Keep doing it. I'm going to direct them in. So he walked out by the street. Here comes the fire truck and ambulance. They finally take over. They take my dad. I was giving him mouth to mouth doing CPR. Um, this guy that had been the lead arson investigator with the city for years, he had retired with the city. He was now a reserve deputy. He showed up. And uh, they got my dad in the back of the ambulance and they're working on him. And uh, they're not taking off, I guess, because they were working on him. And they were there for a long time. And um, my mom, I'm sitting on the front porch with my mom. She's sitting there crying. I'm sitting there next to her. Bo, there was a burst of rain that came down on us. It was a single burst of rain. Um, the clouds were real thin and wispy. Yeah. They weren't the heavy rain clouds that hold rain. These were thin, wispy clouds. Just a burst of rain came down. And me and my mom looked at each other. 
we took that as a sign that my dad's spirit had flown. And the best way I can describe it is if you've ever, uh, if you ever fired a water hose up in the air and then pinched it off and you watched the, the, the water come down on you. Yeah. It was like that. Wow. Just, just a single burst at that point, that deputy comes around the ambulance. My mom resumes to crying. He looks over, make sure she's not looking, makes eye contact with me. And then he shakes his head. They ended up transporting my dad. He was at the hospital for a week and he was totally unresponsive at this point. Then my brother, Philip and my mom and me, once again, we had to decide to discontinue life support four months after we did the same thing with my brother. But we had that burst of rain that told us he wasn't there anyway. That's, that's unusual. That's all. That's, that had to be, that had to be yeah. your, your sign. Pete, I'm so sorry, man. What a, what a struggle to go through. It, I, I'm so sorry, man. Hey, <laughs> it's all right, brother. I, uh, I'm redeemed, man. I, uh, the story of the prodigal son makes me cry because I'm that prodigal son. Yeah. This whole time I was so depressed and drinking myself into oblivion. The whole time the Lord was there, but oh, you know what? That would irritate me. My, my, my brother, my brother Philip. He went around like nothing bothered him, right? So I thought he didn't even care. I thought nobody, nobody even cares. Who cares more than me? Look at me. I'm depressed. And look at him. He's happy. He doesn't even care. Well, come to find out, Bo. He said, he said, our brother knew the Lord. He was baptized. He wasn't perfect. He said, but he said, I know the Lord has him. And he said, and I just want to do everything in my power to someday get to see him again. Amen. And that was my brother's attitude. And instead I went years, years, angry, bitter, depressed, hatred in my heart. This guy died. You would think after he's dead, I would move on, right? No, I continued destroying myself. I hated this guy so much. You know, Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart, then you've already committed murder. Yeah. Oh, I went to all the hearings. The only time that guy ever made eye contact with me was at the very first hearing. He made eye contact, and if looks could kill, he looked away. I was there. I was armed. I think the sheriff was worried that I was going to take matters into my own hands because there were so many armed deputies. They even had two behind me and my wife. Hmm. I know why they were there, Bo. And, and you know what, Pete? Nobody would blame you. Uh, yeah, you you probably would have been pulled away from your wife for a while, you know. Yeah. Um, I. Uh, it what bothers me is I know why they I know why the sheriff well the sheriff himself showed up, and he had all these deputies at the front of the court. Then he had two behind me, and uh, I guess what bothers me, Bo is 
if I was going to take matters in my own hands, that was something that we all could have done the day of. That's true. Why I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that in open court in front of everybody and risk hurting someone else on accident. Right. So it bothered me that I knew, I knew that the reason they were all there was because of me and he even put two behind us and I'm with my wife. Now, granted, I was in uniform and I was armed. But I don't know that that that's kind of always bothered me that. I don't know. I, I tell you what, you're a strong man. You're a strong man with a lot of faith. And to, it's understandable that you that you, uh, you know, gave in to anger for a little while. You know, that you gave in to coping mechanisms that you knew better than to do for a little while. And you are the prodigal son. You return. Yeah. And look at you now. You know, you've got peace again. Yeah, I appreciate it, Bo. That is, uh, I appreciate it. I, I will tell you that throughout the years, everyone always, they would, admire me and compliment me and say I'm so strong I'm, I'm so well man if they only knew I I was dying inside I I wasn't handling it as well as they thought I was yeah I put on a brave face but inside man I was dying it was killing me and uh I'll tell you what um when I was a rookie at the academy, they told us the three things that run high with cops is alcoholism, divorce, and suicide. <laughs> and I thought, nah, not me. No way. I was young, man. I was 20. Wow. Next thing you know, man, you, you don't think it'll happen to you when you're in your 20s and you're starting out. And next thing you know, all this stuff was happening. And I'm thinking... I thought back to that. I remembered that. I thought, yeah, they warned us. And I'm going to tell you right now, the only reason I'm not divorced is because my wife is a strong woman. She's a good person. And she has put up with so much of my crap. Anyone else would have left. I would have left, I think. <laughs> yeah. so that's, a, that's a testament to her, man, because really, no one should put up with all my crap that she's had to put up with. Thank God for good women. <laughs> for sure. Uh, you know, that the police force, they, they tell you the same thing in the military too. The same, same three to watch for alcoholism, divorce, and suicide. And I've dealt with, uh, I, my thoughts of uh, wanting to just leave this world uh they may have i may have had some of those thoughts you know after the military or yeah towards the end of my enlistment but my my deepest darkest times were well yeah it's probably about the time yeah about the end of my <laughs> military enlistment but the, the alcoholism uh, divorce oh yeah it all rang true and I, I also remembered on the day we graduated basic training you know we're getting coined um my ti uh, Staff Sergeant Rodriguez, we're down in San Antonio, 
he he come down the line to me and he's giving me the coin and he said kennedy that's a good name don't be an alcoholic and i thought man i, I wouldn't touch alcohol you know but yeah it cut to me <laughs> about three months later <laughs> learning what it's all about you know? yeah yeah man Basically, I think that's the whole story. Um, yeah, there was some paranormal stuff related to that, even believe it or not. Yeah, it, it sounds like it. And Pete, I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I know that was difficult. And um, I don't think I've ever cried on a, my own show before, but uh, you moved me, man. And I just I pray for God to comfort you. And, to bring you, you know, to keep you in that peace. You know, I know that reliving it every time you tell it, I'm sure you relive it more than people realize. And I just, I'm very grateful to you for sharing that with me. Um, I do have a question because you asked me to bring it up. Yes, sir. Um, oh, yeah. The ladies, you know, when he had that uh, hot date, you know. <laughs> the lady, let me tell you about the, let me tell you something. Um, I still have the receipt from that night where my brother paid for the drinks. Right. And when he signed it, I got a copy of the receipt. It was in his wallet when I got his wallet. Oh, also, uh, get this. I've got his badge that he was wearing. Yeah. And one, one of the ball bearings knocked out the state of Texas seal that's in the middle of the badge. Oh, wow. So I've got his actual badge. It's missing the seal because the ball bearing hit it right dead center. Oh, wow. I've also got his 45, which is still covered in blood. Mm. It's still sealed in evidence tape in the box. I've not had the courage to remove it and clean it. Yeah. Uh, I intend to give it to his son someday. Um, the receipt from that night when they had drinks. I'm glad you brought this up just tell you how much of a small world this is even with 150,000 people in town if you count the county and the city right the receipt said f it and years later uh my wife was working at the hospital and she had this lady come in and her legs were shattered from a car wreck. This wreck had taken her young son's life. I think he was 14. And she got to talking to my wife. And somehow the subject of my brother came up. And this lady that was my wife's patient, she said, she brought up the fact that the night before my brother was killed, she and a friend of hers had gone out and they met these two other guys there and they had drinks with them. And she was one of the two ladies. Oh my goodness. Yeah. She was one of the two ladies that on his last night. Wow. Yeah, it's a small world moment for sure. What are the chances, man? 
I'm glad you brought that up because I'd forgotten to tell you. Wow. Man. Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate you, brother. Uh, I appreciate what you're doing. And I want you, I want so much success for you and your family, your podcast. You know, Peter, I appreciate that, man. Uh, um, yeah, I want, I would love it if the show succeeds. You know, I would love it if, you know, things take off and it becomes uh, a side hustle that pays the bills instead of, you know, a, a hobby that I pay into. But, you know, this year I felt like I was, I was called to, to use this platform to, to maybe, you know, shed a little light on the Lord more than myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's where everything has led me to doing the show. That's where my own personal growth has come from. And, uh, you know, this, fortunately, you know, thank God this, the show has a global audience and, you know, if there's anybody that I can help lead them to the Lord, so they, or, or their loved ones, so they don't have to worry, you know, cause I, I got family members that I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure how things were when they left, you know, I, I don't know if they went to heaven, to be honest. Right. And I don't want anybody to feel that. Um, so if we can, if we can turn a few more people towards the Lord and take a little bit of the devil's territory away from him on this earth, then we're doing our jobs. Right. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I believe it's revelation two seventeen talks about, we all have a secret name, a celestial name that God has given us. And not, none of us know what that name is, but someday you'll know it. And when you hear that name, you recognize it as belonging uniquely to yourself. And I guess that's what bothers me when a lot of people get mad and reject God and they're rebellious towards him. Because he says that he knew us before we were even knitted inside our mother's womb. Right. So you think of your loved ones. You know, my brothers and I, we, we grew up pretty much in poverty. But we didn't know it. It's no. the cliche. It's that typical cliche. We had a loving mother and father. Yeah. But we didn't really know that, you know, growing up. We didn't know we were poor. We felt rich. We were we were blessed. But something my uh, my parents and my brothers, what we always said, I love you. If if we were in person, it'd be I love you with a hug. If it was on the phone, the last thing we'd say is I love you. And the reason we did that is you never know when you're going to see when's the last time you'll see your loved ones. That's right. So the very last thing you ever told them is I love you. I was raised the exact same way and I still do it the exact same way to this day, man. That's the, that's the last thing I say to everybody in my family. Yeah. I'll tell you uh, when I met my wife, she wasn't raised that way. Her mom and dad never hugged them, kissed them, or told them I love you. Right. And she said, I know they love us, but they never said it. And uh, she goes, I like the way you and your family do it. She said, when we have kids, I want to do it y'all's way. <laughs> Which is what we do. Yeah. That's the only way to do it. Man. 
don't leave yeah. any don't, there's there's no reason for doubt and what does it ever hurt to throw out an extra i love you <laughs> you know what i mean exactly and I'll tell you something else by the time you reach my age you're not even embarrassed to tell another grown man that you love him absolutely not you know why when you're young yeah you might be embarrassed about it but you reach my age what does it what does it matter what anybody thinks at that point you know that's right that's all right. Yeah, I, I just talked about this. You know, my dad came up over the weekend and my my daughter was, you know, throwing off on it a little bit, you know, because we were talking about the same thing, but I love yous. And I said, you know, the Bible says to greet each other with a brotherly kiss. You know, I, I still kiss my dad on the cheek sometimes. There's, yeah. there's, there's nothing wrong with, you know, loving on each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, we're supposed to to love each other like we love ourselves. Yeah, I'll tell you what, you know, one of my hardest struggles as a Christian, I, I got to admit, it's uh, loving my enemies. Oh, yeah, my table. That is so hard. Okay. That is so hard. Yeah, I have a very short list. I think, God, there's only a few people that I, I... come on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I had heard you say on another podcast that, that your dad believes we were seated here on this planet. <laughs> yeah. When you talk to your dad, you tell him I said that I agree with him 100%. We were seated on this planet. By God. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Planet right in the garden. What? <laughs> he created this planet and he even planted us like an actual seed and made us out of dirt. That's it. That's it. No, I heard that and it made me laugh. I thought, I agree with him. We were seated. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell him. Yeah. I I enjoy your show, man. I love it. And uh, I had told you earlier what my two favorite shows were. And uh, the truth is this, man. I love your show. And it's because of what I've already said. You're so genuine that... I've got several podcasts I listen to, but when yours comes up, it's like drop everything. I want to hear what, what oh, both. Thank you, man. I appreciate that so much, Pete. That, yeah. that means the world to me, man. That, it, it keeps it going. <laughs> Cause there's been a lot of times I'm like, why do I do this? You know? But, right. But I love it. I appreciate you so much. So, Especially when you're catching all kinds of flack from everybody. Uh, yeah. just just put it in your opening or or in the title or something and then at that point what what can they do you, you got your warning up front <laughs> ah, it's all right uh, let them let them be surprised let the first time listeners get on here and be like what is this it's okay right. <laughs> yeah that's good too that's good too so i um whenever you get ready at any point in the future you slow down or something I've got one more paranormal one left, and I think I'll be all done. Hey, well, I will. Worries after that. I'll definitely holler at you again for uh, the fourth installment. But I, regardless of if we do shows or not, man, I, I want to keep in touch with you. I, you know what, Bo? I, I've really enjoyed getting to meet you and talk to you, and I really would like that. I would too, man. I, I consider you my friend now, Pete. Yes, um, sir. And you've you've shared so much with me, man. I. I'm going to tell you something else. If you and your dad or you and your family 
ever make a trip down here to the annual Bigfoot conference. Yeah. It's right here where I live now. And you guys are welcome to stay here at my house with me and my family. We've got a guest room and y'all don't have to rent a hotel. And I'll take you to this, this bridge, not far from where I live, where back in 2016, this guy spotted a, a Bigfoot crossing over there. At first he thought it was a bear. And of course we don't have a lot of bears here in Texas. All right. Well, he thought it was a black bear crossing this over by this bridge. This bridge is out in the middle of nowhere. It's covered in graffiti. It's where all the high school kids go to party here. And uh, they call it Graffiti Bridge, but that's not what it's actually called. That's just the nickname. But yeah, I'm, I'm deep in East Texas. Oh, and another thing, Cass County's north of me. And I was listening to another podcast and there was two separate dogman reports here next county north of me. Ooh. which that freaks me out more than anything man yeah me too <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that man that's very generous very kind offer of you yes sir. Um, I, I have spent a lot of time around your general area you know i was on the other side of the border i was in shreveport Bossier. Over oh in i know Indiana. exactly i know where exactly because uh me and my family went and visited that museum at barksdale yeah, that, that's where I was stationed. Six years yeah. right there at Barksdale. Wow, so that's what, that's what, 40, 45 miles? Something like that? Yeah. Away, away from where I'm at? It's, it's close. Yeah, I got pulled over by a police officer named Rusty about 45 miles away from the border, too. Maybe a little closer, even. Uh, I was trying to come back into Louisiana, and I was in the right-hand lane behind a camper. And I'm going like 80 miles an hour. Yeah, I was speeding. But this yeah. uh, a cop, he pulls in behind me, turns his lights on. And I thought, I must be in the way. You know, I'm, I'm behind this big camper. I'm going down the road. So I, I get into the left lane so he can, he can go on to try to pull, maybe pull the camper over. And he swings yeah. over to the left lane. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm still in his way. And I get over back into the right <laughs> lane. And he swerves over again. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. He's after me. You know, so I, I pull off. And he's like, I don't, I don't know where you think you were trying to go. And I was like, sir, I was trying to get out of your way. I didn't, I had no clue you were after me. And he said, the speed limit in Texas, is, I think it was like 70 miles an hour. And I said, yes, sir. And he asked for my license. And I thought that I was going to pull the military card, you know, so I pull out my military ID with my license and I hand it to him. Yeah. He don't even glance at it. He's like, I don't need to see that and throws it back to me. Oh man. And I was like, I'm getting a ticket. <laughs> Oh, man. he got me. He, he busted me man <laughs> oh man it's all right yeah. it's my fault i was breaking the law yeah i hate to hear that man <laughs> yeah but his name was rusty i remember that and he he was a short little red-headed guy and i thought what a name <laughs> <laughs> that's funny because uh i used to for years i worked with a rusty <laughs> he's a pretty cool dude though was he yeah the rusty i worked with was he a, well this guy might have been a cool dude i might have just made him mad switching lanes on him two or three times but. yeah sometimes that happens but yeah <laughs> he probably you're trying to evade him or something probably oh well yeah it don't help that i, I, I look like a, a convict anyway oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well pete i'm gonna hop off here i got church in a couple hours i'm gonna go get yes. ready yes sir uh, God bless you. 
God and bless I love you. you. Okay. We'll talk to you later. All right, brother. Hey, I love you. Right. I love you too. Bye. <laughs> later, Pete. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're looking for the pack that will help you survive the worst day of your life, or a pack to use for your everyday carry that you never have to worry about failing, if you're looking for the perfect bug-out bag, the perfect bushcraft pack, uh, for camping, hiking, whatever your needs, go to SquatchSurvivalGear.com and check it out. All products are 100% made in America. You can use promo code BUMP22 and save 10% site-wide. All right, that's BUMP, B-U-M-P, 22 to save 10% site-wide. This is a veteran-owned business. Like I said, every component of every product made in America. The buckles, the zippers, the straps, American made. Um, there's never been a more important time than now to bring it home. You know what I mean? So go to SquatchSurvivalGear.com. Best products on the market. I've got videos on YouTube about it if you want to see it. Um, or just go to the website. Check it out. SquatchSurvivalGear.com. But wait, there's more. <laughs> hey, Chris messaged me and said that if you guys use Bump22 as the promo code this year, that he's going to increase that discount to 15%. So get on there now. Use Bump22. Save 15% site-wide at SquatchSurvivalGear.com. All right, that's it for this week, guys. I hope you enjoyed listening to the show. If you just have to have more content, you can go to patreon.com slash the bump podcast and subscribe and be a patron. Uh, got more and more content on there every week. So I hope you enjoy that. Uh, to catch up on past episodes, go to the bump click the episode tab and it'll take you to any episode you want to listen to. Also, if you want to be on the show, I would love to have you on share your story with us. Go to the bump Click the holler at me button and holler at me. Send me an email, thebumppodcast at gmail.com, and uh, I'll get you on as fast as we can. 
All right. Again, thanks for listening. I love you guys. Until next time, don't stop believing. Oh, my soul.
you're at a place in your life that you're you're ready to give your heart over to the Lord then I have a little a little message that I found that if you repeat it and you believe it in your heart this could help lead you closer to God to, to let Jesus Christ save you and it goes like this Heavenly Father I come to you from the depths of my heart realizing that I have sinned I repent of my sins and confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died on the cross for me and my sins. I believe that you raised him from the dead. Lord Jesus, come into my heart and live in me now. I receive by faith you as my personal Lord and Savior. I receive your Holy Spirit as my comforter to help me obey you and do your will. It is in Jesus' name that I believe and receive the things prayed this day. Amen.